0: This is guns and butter. There's
1: it's enterprise software that gives you uh, not only access to everything that's going on um, in the network in real time, but it gives you surveillance and uh, you know the ability to intervene to to, to do something to change something. And uh, this would explain, for example, why the American military was uh, unable to respond effectively to the hijackings on 9-11. I'm
0: Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East. Christopher Boleyn is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. He spent three years traveling extensively throughout Europe and the Middle East. He studied Egyptian, Biblical Hebrew, and Norwegian at the University of Oslo. He is a graduate of the University of California in History, with an emphasis on Israel-Palestine. Along with research and writing, he has worked as an editor and translator. His travels and studies of German, Spanish, Norwegian, Swedish, and Arabic languages have helped him analyze international politics and events. He is the author of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, Solving 9-11, The Articles, and The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East. His newest book, out on September 11, 2019, is Solving 9-11, The Articles, Volume 2. Christopher Boleyn, welcome.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be with you.
0: You begin your book, The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East, with a quote from then President George W. Bush one week after the attacks of September 11th quote, This crusade, this war on terrorism, is going to take a while. Unquote. At the same time, Congress passed the authorization to use military force. What does this authorization to use military force authorize the president
1: to do? Well, it's an open-ended funding and authorization which allows the president to basically wage war against anybody he deems to have uh, been involved in the terror attacks of 9-11 or to be harboring anybody who was involved in the terrorist attacks of 9-11. So it, it provides the money and the political authorization to wage war based on the president's decision that that entity was involved in September 11th.
0: And this authorization to use military force is not just against other countries, but organizations and individuals, right?
1: Right. Um, anybody that he that he, he sees to have been in some way involved in the terror attacks of 9-11. Um, and that could be also uh, a country like Afghanistan, who they said was harboring um, the uh, al-Qaeda group that they said did 9-11. But this authorization has been abused since 2001. And um, under the war on terror, under the guise of fighting the war on terror, under that authorization, they've waged war in, in dozens of countries.
0: Now, since the Constitution gives the right of declaring war, Does this authorization take away that right from Congress? I mean, it basically hands it over to the president,
1: makes it his decision. Isn't that right? Right. Uh, It's like an abdication of their responsibility that they have uh, basically given him a rubber stamp that he can use to wage war wherever he sees fit. It's his decision and his decision alone um, as to where he wants to wage war.
0: What is the significance of the U.S. president stating that the terror attacks of 9-11 were, quote, an act of war? Well,
1: that's very important. Um, They made that declaration already on the first day, on September 11th. That's important because um, it means that as an act of war, that the government will respond to it accordingly using military force and wage war against the people that they said did this, that that committed the terror attack, and so it's uh, you know, the attack on the Pentagon uh, was the one thing that that allowed them to make that determination because the Pentagon is of course a, an American military fortress. So when you have a military attack on a military fortress, it is a military a military uh an act of war, and so using that that logic, they they it precluded the the need for there to be any. Criminal investigation to determine who was really behind 9/11. So um, it, it it gave them an easy way out for those people who wanted to wage war in the first place.
0: Right. The ability to wage a war uh, because of these attacks then negated the the necessity to hold a criminal investigation. Isn't that what you're
1: saying? Right, right, and then the authorization to use military force was passed a couple days after 9-11, so um, based on that, George Bush was able to take the country to war uh, less than a month after 9-11 happened in Afghanistan, because everything was uh, basically allowed, the authorization, the funding, and the logic.
0: You point out that the U.S. has conducted major military operations in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, Libya, Syria, and the Philippines. Has mm-hmm. any evidence been presented that any of these countries were involved in the terror attacks of September 11th?
1: No. Um, not even has evidence been presented to uh, indict Osama bin Laden, for example. I mean, it's the famous story about the FBI did not put uh, Osama bin Laden on um, the most wanted list for his involvement in 9-11 because they didn't have evidence for that. So, the entire war on terror is uh, a war is being fought under false premises. And the, the authorization to use military force is being abused. Um, and they've spent something like $7 trillion on this war. This war on terror that began in October 2001 has now gone on for over 18 years and it's the longest and most expensive war in U.S. history.
0: General Wesley Clark, in a presentation to the San Francisco Commonwealth Club in 2007, said that there was a coup on 9-11 in the United States, a policy coup. What did General Clark mean by a policy coup?
1: Well, he said that some hard-nosed people took over the direction of American foreign policy And never bothered to inform the rest of us. And he pointed out that there were – in this memo that he had discovered, he had learned about when he went to the Pentagon a a week or so after 9-11, there were seven countries on this memo that the United States military was prepared to overthrow in the next five years. And those countries were uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off with Iran. And that's basically been the to-do list for the war on terror. And, uh, yeah, that's what they've done. And he discovered, he heard this memo, and he was shocked that, that you know, he had been the former chief of the military in, in, in Europe during the Afghanistan war. He had, he had just finished his, his, uh, his service in, in Europe. And he, he knows policy. He knows what he's talking about. He was running for president at the time. And he knows that this was a policy coup where the what they call the, the neocons, the Zionist neocons, people like Wolfowitz, had had dictated this policy, and this was being followed by the Pentagon.
0: How would you describe the Israeli Yenon Plan for the Middle East, authored by Oded Yinon and translated into English by Israel Shahak? I believe this was written in 1982?
1: Right. It was published in 1982. Well, um... In 1982, uh, Oded Yinon, he's a strategist for the Likud party. Uh, he was writing and serving under Ariel Sharon. He wrote this uh, strategy for Israel in the 1980s. And it called for Israel to basically uh, uh, wage war and to overthrow the uh, Arab countries all across the region. All the Arab countries. And to break them up into ethnic statelets into, uh, uh, you know, along ethnic lines. It's often called balkanization, and it resembles what was done to Yugoslavia. So you take a large, secular, socialist economy, if you will, and you break it up into small warring factions that don't get along with each other. And this is exactly – the the Yanon plan called for, on the eastern front, uh, doing this first to Iraq and then Syria saying that Iraq was the the main enemy, the the largest, most formidable enemy of Israel. And the thing is, this is exactly what's happened under the United States um, occupation of both Iraq and Syria. And I I saw in the news just today that uh, Michael Pence is visiting Iraq, the Kurdish Kurdish, uh, section of Iraq. So Iraq has been broken up into a Sunni section, a Shiite section, and a Kurdish section in the north. And the same sort of thing is being done to uh, Syria. And these were the first two uh, targets for the uh, Israeli plan known as the Yanon plan. It was published in Hebrew in 1982.
0: What are some of the drastic political and social changes that have been imposed on America and the world as a result of the 9-11 deception?
1: Well, it, 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 it fundamentally changed the relationship between the citizen and the state. Um as you can see, like in the United States, when you go flying, traveling, you're treated as a suspect, uh, a, a terrorism suspect, even though you're just a member of the traveling public. Uh, this can be on the trains. This can be on the planes, uh, the way we're treated when we go in through the uh, security check. And um, also, there's been a huge increase in the militarization of the police forces in America. Um, this is partly due to the the whole idea of preparing for uh, – you know, the same sort of insurrection in the United States as they have faced in Afghanistan and Iraq. And also the, um, uh, the fact that a lot of people that served in Iraq and Afghanistan in the wars um, have come back from the wars and gotten employed as police officers. So you have this, uh, you know, this whole militarization of America, uh, the police, you see it everywhere you go. And that is, uh, that's part of the, that's the legacy of the, the war on terror.
0: What exactly has the war on terror brought us uh, in terms of the rules of war, including torture? Now that never used to be allowed.
1: Right, right, right. They don't call it torture. They, you know, they call it enhanced interrogation. But yes, the the rules have all been rewritten so that we now have uh, torture, as you say. We had we had big camps, you know, in, in Iraq, like Camp Bucca, where people were, you know, tortured and abused systematically. Um, and this was done because they said that there was a, a need to know what these people uh, were up to. And so based on that uh, and the whole fear that they had imposed on the on the American public, uh, people went along with it. They went along with this thinking that these people that had done 9-11 were so evil that um, anything would anything would be, anything that could, could stop them, anything that could hinder their their evil plans would be allowed. And, you know, that's, it's, uh, like I said, America's just become a very much a, a, a pro, pro-war, anything goes uh, nation uh, after, after 9-11. How was the foe in
0: the war on terror created?
1: Well, that's a very good question. You see, The war on terror is a very old uh, doctrine, uh, an Israeli doctrine going back at least to the late 70s when Menachem Begin, the arch-terrorist of Israel history, uh, when he became prime minister. He became prime minister in 74, I think. His party came to leadership in 77. He was the, the prime minister then in 77. Two years later, he called a conference on international terrorism. In Jerusalem, which was attended by something like 700 dignitaries from around the world, uh, owners of media, President George, President George Bush's father, George Herbert Walker Bush, who was running for president at the time, and they uh, rolled out this doctrine in a three-day propaganda offensive in Jerusalem called the Jerusalem Conference on International Terrorism, in which they said that uh, that the new enemy of the of the West was terrorism, international terrorism. At the time, they blamed it all on Russia. That Russia was behind this terrorism and they said that um, uh, what has to happen is that the Western militaries have to engage um, you know the terrorists in the Middle East and those nations that are protecting them and so this was the doctrine and this was the war on terror doctrine explained and laid out as the new doctrine for the West to follow and what happened though is that it it, it didn't go into effect immediately uh, because it required, of course, something like 9-11 to make the United States you know, move its military operationally into the Middle East. So 9-11 was basically the spark plug or the, the, the kickstart that brought this war on terror from 1979 into reality, into operation. I'm speaking with
0: investigative journalist and author Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, of course, this Jerusalem conference on international terrorism that took place in 1979 and was arranged by then Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin was extremely important and seminal okay. in this whole uh, war on terror. And as you've mentioned, uh, George H.W. Bush was in attendance, and he was running for president then. Mm-hmm. O- on the same subject, what is the Jonathan Institute, and what was its purpose?
1: Right. Well, the the entity that uh, hosted the conference was the Jonathan Institute. Jonathan is the first name of Jonathan Netanyahu. This is uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's older brother, who uh, reportedly died, was, was killed in the... Uh, Israeli operation in Entebbe, I think it's Uganda, when there was a a hijacked planes had been taken there and the uh, Israeli um, covert force uh, known as Sayeret Matkal went in and uh, were able to release the hostages. But in the process of this rescue operation, Jonathan Netanyahu was killed. So they named the institute after him. And so that Menachem Begin was the organizer of the conference. He was the prime minister at the time. He was um, in, involved in Lebanon, you know, attacking Lebanon at the same time. And uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and his father, Benzion Netanyahu, were the conference hosts, if you will. They were the ones that organized it and, and got it arranged at their institute. This isn't an institute that has any sort of address, physical address. It's just an institute. And its whole purpose was to promote the idea of the war on terror. You mentioned this, uh, operation at Entebbe in
0: Uganda. Um, wasn't that a false flag? I mean, wasn't that, was that an actual hijacking or was that staged?
1: Well, that's a good question. You know, um, I don't have enough information about the Entebbe operation or, you know, other operations at that, from that time period. Uh, people say the same thing about the, uh, Munich massacre from the Olympics in 1972, it was, I think, um. You know, and, and looking back today with our understanding of how Israeli false flag operations work, um, there's a lot of question marks about, you know, these, these earlier operations if they were staged. or. But the thing is that it's, it's, it's very likely and it's, it's not unreasonable that people um, think like that because um, Israel has been doing false flag operations for a long time. They've been doing false flag operations since they became a state and even before but the first false flag operation that, that I know of that Israel did was in 1952 or 53. I think it's called the Lavon Affair, and it was done in Egypt. And uh, it was Israelis and some Egyptian Jews who uh, sell who were planting nitroglycerin bombs in British and American uh Buildings and you know libraries and cultural centers and theaters and things like that, and that was an operation that uh, was discovered to be an Israeli false flag operation. It was meant to be to be blamed on the Islamic Brotherhood. But what happened is that the the Egyptian police captured uh, some of the agents and they confessed.
0: In the same year as the Jerusalem conference, veteran Israeli intelligence chief Isser Harel made a prediction. What was his prediction?
1: Yes. Issa Harel was the founder of the Israeli Mossad. He's like the first real chief of the Mossad and former head of the Shin Bet, which is Israel's internal intelligence, uh, like the FBI. And he said – he made a prediction to an American Zionist. He predicted that uh, Arabs would attack the tallest building in New York City and that they would do this because this is a symbol of a, you know American fertility. And uh, – yeah, that they would that they would attack the tallest building in, in in New York City, and he made that prediction in 1979, and it was it was only reported after 9/11. It was reported by a guy named uh, I think his name is Michael Evans from uh, Texas. He's a he's a Jewish guy who has a Christian evangelical uh, operation called uh, Jerusalem Prayers or something about that. Uh, but what he does is he he's one of these Christian Zionists who who's very pro-Zionist, and he was very close with people like. Uh, Menachem Begin and uh, Issa Harrell, and so at the same time that they had this conference, uh, Issa Harrell was putting into his mind, into Mr. Mr. Uh, Michael Evans' mind, the idea that um, well, it's called the Jerusalem Prayer Team. That's what it's called. That that Arabs were were targeting the United States of America, and they would target the tallest building in New York City. I call this ediation. This is putting this is putting hints out there, putting the idea out there. Through people like uh, the the Evangelist Minister, they did the same thing in a movie form, uh, television shows. They put the idea out there that Arabs are targeting the tallest buildings in New York City. So when it happens, the public is, 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 is a short way for them to understand that this is simply reality imitating art, you know that this is, has been predicted, and you know it's understood. And well, that's what happened. Did't you see the movie? Yes, could you talk about Mossad
0: operative uh, Arnon Milkhan and the Hollywood films he's produced?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Arnon Milkan is right in the middle of this uh, current case with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu because he he's the Hollywood producer who um, was also a senior Israeli agent. He was an agent in an operation called LAKAM, L-A-K-A-M, and that is Israel's top secret producer uh, uh, operation to get components for their nuclear program from the United States. And this guy was was their number one agent. And he was at the same time he was a Hollywood film producer. He made Pretty Woman, uh, JFK, Brazil, um, The Fight Club, you know, lots of movies he's made. And in his movies, there's there's often ideation of the 9-11 attacks. For example, there's a movie he made called – the first movie he ever made was called The Medusa Touch – in 1978, in which a passenger aircraft is flown into the Pan Am building. And that's the climactic scene of the movie, I think. It's uh, one year before the conference, and uh, it's very telling. When you understand that, when you see that he, Arnon Milchan, was Israel's top Israeli agent. He's close friends with Ezra Weitzman, the uh, defense minister of Israel at the time. He's uh, very close friends with Shimon Peres, Shimon Peres is the guy who brought him in. Um, Shimon Peres is, of course, the the godfather of the whole Israeli arsenal, nuclear arsenal. And this man, Arnon Milchan, his his operation was to get what they needed for the the nuclear arsenal. And he was caught red-handed. His operation was caught red-handed smuggling uh, nuclear triggers, something like 800 of them, from the United States to Israel. And at that time, his employee who was involved in this operation was Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, in the in the trial with Benjamin Netanyahu, or the, the charges that are placed against Netanyahu, um, part of it is because he was receiving uh, bribes or uh, gifts, very expensive gifts, from Arnon Milchan. Now,
0: what about uh, the television pilot, The Lone Gunman, that uh, you write about in your book, was uh, co-produced by
1: Arnon Milchan and Rupert Murdoch. Yeah, well, they had a a television company together they they have or they had uh, Regency Productions I think it's called and they're very close as well Murdoch is very close to Anna Milchan uh, Milchan was his landlord or vice versa but in any case they're they're business partners as well they're they're co-owners of this TV production company and in uh, 2000 uh, Murdoch's uh, company the New Regency Films I think it was called they made this this production called The Lone Gunman in which something like the 9-11 attack, very similar, happens in the film. It's only a half an hour film. It's made for TV, in which a, a passenger aircraft is hijacked remotely uh, using a kind of uh, a more sophisticated chip called Octium chip. And the plane is hijacked uh, using the uh, override so that the pilots don't even know it because the plane is being flown on autopilot. And uh what happens is that the plane is flown is' being flown directly into the World Trade Center and at the last minute the uh, pilots are able to regain control and, and just narrowly miss avoid hitting the World Trade Center. but this movie came out uh, and was aired on Fox TV uh, in March of 2001 six months before 9/11 happened and you know this is the thing what we see with Mil Milkan and Milhan's Murdoch films is that the the idea, the ideation of 9-11 is shown time after time after time, and the, the idea of the war on terror is another uh, part of, of his uh, films in the, in the movie Brazil, the futuristic film Brazil. Um, it's, it's a state where, like the United States is today, where the, 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 the state is waging a constant war against terrorism, and in doing so, it's, you know, it's imposing itself a great deal on, on its own people.
0: Yes, in the film Brazil, there are terrorist attacks and bombings just randomly. I remember a scene where uh, some people are having an elegant dinner and all of a sudden a bomb blows out the wall. Mm-hmm. But it's just routine and the, and the waiters rush in and, and put up a, a screen between, between the uh, diners and the blown out wall and it's all presented as if it's just a day in the life.
1: Yeah, and if you remember that scene in the restaurant where the women are talking about the operations and the surgeries they can get, uh, and the bomb goes off. Just before the bomb goes off, the uh, the woman, one of the young, the young girl, says salt, and she raises a, a jar of salt to offer salt, and then the bomb goes off. That's very interesting. And then, and then, as soon as the bomb goes off, um, the band, the band brushes off, brushes themselves off, and starts playing. And what song do they start playing? The Havana the Zionist National Anthem, the oh. Hava Nagila.
0: Oh, my God. And, and I, 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 for, I,
1: I, I forgot about that detail. <laughs> whose, whose idea was that, you know? And and that's that's just like Arnon Milkan making a joke out of the whole thing, you know? This movie was made in 1985 or 86, and it's like, it's it's a very, very interesting choice of music.
0: Yeah, that's very chilling. You've mentioned how Arnon Milkan was involved in... Uh, the smuggling of nuclear triggers out of the United States to Israel. Could you talk about the theft of nuclear material and uranium from the United States by Israeli operatives? Who were they, and what was the time frame in which these thefts were taking place?
1: Well, there was an uh, operation, I think it was in the 70s or, or early 80s, uh, from Apollo, Pennsylvania, in which Issa Harel, his, his men, his, his main men uh, were, were then Svi uh, Malkin and Shalom ben And an, a very key player in this is a man named Rafi Aitan. Rafi Aitan, um, this man, was the head of the LACOM program at the time. He was the head of the operation to get the components for uh, you know, nuclear materials. And he sent these men, um, Shalom Ben-Dor and Svi Malkin. And Ravi, Ravi Eitan himself was a member of this group. They went to uh, Apollo, Pennsylvania and uh, arranged with this man who owned this company, NUMEC, I think it's called. The man's name was Ben Shapiro. And he was an American Jew who was willing to help. And what happened is that after they visited um, the plant in Apollo and met with Mr. Shapiro, the plutonium was then sent in uh, special cartons, uh to israel by uh by ll freighters and this was the smuggling of plutonium to israel for their nuclear weapons and uh it's interesting that this is uh, discussed in the uh, book about uh robert maxwell israel super spy because uh you know rafi Eitan played a big role in all of this stuff and uh it's, it's also involved uh, the theft of the promised software. That came a little bit later. That came in the 80s. Um, but when Rafi Eitan was able to steal the promise software, this is the prosecutor's information management system, um, it allowed them to uh, adapt the software for spying and sell it to countries all around the world, um, which gave the super user, the Israelis, access to everything that was going on in the networks that had bought the software.
0: I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Right, and you mentioned uh, Robert Maxwell uh, in connection to this uh, stolen promise software. And I, I believe in that book... Uh, isn't he selling this software to other countries?
1: Yeah. They used Maxwell as their main sales agent. And he sold it, you know, first to places like Zimbabwe and South Africa and then to Jordan and countries in the Middle East. And and it got everywhere. It got to banks and Swiss banks. And, you know, then they, then they, this was the promise. This was the modified promise software. So they got the promise software from the Department of Justice. Um, And he was, Rafi Eitan was traveling in the United States under a, an alias. I think it was named David Orr, something like that. Doctor David Orr. So he, he was using the identity of an Israeli man, a, a real doctor in in Jerusalem, and traveling under under his name. And they got this uh, software, and then they, they he adapted it. He brought it back to Israel, and they adapted it for spying. So they put a microchip in there, and and they they moved things around so that this became um, inter- enterprise spyware. And this was in the eighties. This is like in 1984. And and then 83, 84, and then they kept developing this the capacity or the capabilities of the software in something called PTEC, and PTEC was the software that was running on all the American military computers and the federal computers on 9/11, and this was the again the spy software that um, was developed by Israel and that was being used to uh, monitor what happened at the FAA on 9/11, and. Uh, it's a. It's part of. The, it's a very important aspect of the computer crime of nine eleven.
0: Right, and you pointed out to me something I hadn't thought of, but that P Tech probably is a shortened form
1: of Promise Technology. Right. It, it stands to reason because it's it's the same it's the same sort of software. It's enterprise software that gives you uh, not only access to everything that's going on um, in the network in real time, but it gives you surveillance and. Uh, the ability to intervene, to, to to do something, to change something, and uh, this would explain, for example, why the American military was uh, unable to respond effectively to the hijackings on 9/11, because they were planes were planes were diverted, you know, uh, uh, communications were missed, uh, you know, so the the attacks went on unhindered. And I think we might also mention,
0: uh, with regard to Robert Maxwell, that he is, of course, the father of, Galen Maxwell, who's been in the news lately uh, with regard
1: to the mm-hmm. Jeffrey Epstein scandal. Right, right. And and in the in the Epstein scandal, you see that one of the most uh, conspicuous Israelis involved in that was uh, Ehud Barak, the former head of Israeli military intelligence, was you know seen photographed coming in and out of um the, the uh, townhouse of Jeffrey Epstein and he, he would stay at Jeffrey Epstein's house one of his houses when he was in town so um yeah it's 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 an Israeli operation you know the the Epstein thing was an Israeli operation and it was it was used to uh, control you know people of influence politicians and what have you and if you look at the list of people who flew on the you know Lolita Express or who stayed on Jeffrey Epstein's island it's uh it's all the big shots you know it's all the top press.
0: You write that when we examine the historical roots of the 9-11 atrocity and the war on terror, we find more indications that 9-11 and the war on terror both originate from the same source. Mm-hmm. What are some of the key events beginning in 1977 that point to a common origin for both 9-11 and the War on Terror. Now, I know you've already mentioned
1: a mm-hmm. few of them, but what event uh, occurred in 1977? Well, that's when the Likud Party came to power. As I said, that's when Menachem Begin came to power. And Menachem Begin is an unabashed, notorious terrorist. He was. Um, he was a, you know, he was involved in the bombing of the King David Hotel back in 1946. Uh, he was involved in the Deir Yassin Massacre, um, you know, when they massacred an entire village near Jerusalem to put the fear into the Palestinians. So um, when this man came to power, uh, you know, as, as uh, uh, Mr. Einstein, Dr. Einstein wrote in 1948, um, Einstein warned the American Jews and the American community that if if uh, Menachem Begin ever comes to power, if his party ever comes to power, it was known as Herut at that time, um, you know, these are terrorists and they will they will do terrible things and you know unfortunately the warnings of albert einstein were uh not heeded. um but anybody who who's followed uh israeli politics over the decades knows that you know the the likes of ardor sharon and yitzhak shamir and and menachem begin um these are people who who uh, came to power using terrorism terrorism is their modus operandi so that when they when they came to power politically in 1977 um, it would be no surprise it should be no surprise that they immediately engaged in a wars of aggression against Lebanon for example and they immediately began using terrorism there's a uh, a book that came out uh, uh, rise and kill first it came out last year and it's written by an israeli guy it's it's, it's, a, it's a it's a discussion of it's a, it's a description of all of the uh, not all but a lot of the israeli assassinations over the or the over the years and um, in this book they talk about in 1979, um, Israeli military intelligence created a terrorist a terrorist network in Lebanon in which the Israelis themselves were putting car bombs and donkey bombs and truck bombs, um, which operated for four years. For four years until 1983 and uh, causing chaos and, and wars in Lebanon between various factions. And, of course, we remember in 1983 what happened to the American uh barracks in Beirut it was blown up by a truck bomb that the Mossad knew all about so that was the beginning of the war on terror and and as I said that they had the conference in 1979 in which they laid out the doctrine that the west should engage uh you know Islamic terrorism across the region um because it's a struggle of of the west and and then in 1982 again the Oded Yenon plan came out uh, which called for the uh balkanization of all the arab states well how is little israel going to balkanize all the states well in order to do that they obviously had to get the western militaries in there to uh do the the hard lifting that uh required you know they needed to be done in places like iraq and syria that's exactly what's happened and so then fast forward to like 9-11 happened um and that was as i said the kickstart for the whole war on terror that 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 uh Bibi Netanyahu had been pushing for decades. If you remember, in the 80s, Netanyahu came out with after the first conference in Jerusalem, he came out with books about it. He came out with books in which he reprinted the the, the speeches that were given or the articles that were written about it, um, and he promoted this war on terror. And he wrote books like Fighting Terrorism: How the West Can Win. And so he was pushing this this like uphill all the way. And I I, I when I read those books, I thought, you know, how is this going to happen? How is this going to come to fruition? Well, 9/11 is how it happened. So when 9/11 happened, they were able to kickstart the war on terror that he'd been pushing for so long. So when he was asked by the New York Times on 9/11, "What does this mean? What does the what happened today mean for Israeli-American relations?" and he said, "It's very good." He blurted it out. "It's very good." He said, "Well, it's not very good, but it'll it'll uh, bring sympathy for the Israeli position or something like that." So it's like, you know, he couldn't hold himself back. And then all the interpretation that we got about the events of 9/11 came through from him and ehud barack ehud Barak was in the bbc studio uh, bbc television studio in london uh, shortly after the towers were struck and he was calling for exact he blamed osama bin laden he said that now is the time to start a concrete operational war on terror and that's exactly what we got and then and then as i said then there was the the the, the memo in the at the pentagon that was circulating at the highest levels calling for the overthrow of seven countries in five years And it took them a little bit longer than five years, but that's exactly what we've done. And now, of course, in the the crosshairs is Iran. You address the question of which came first,
0: the terror attacks of 9-11 or the war on terror. How would you
1: answer this question? Which came first, 9-11 or the war on terror? Yes. Yeah, well... As I said before, 9-11 happened on September 11, 2001, but the war on terror doctrine um, preceded it by, what, 22 years, at least. So it's like they, they, they laid out the, the, the whole idea of the war on terror. They laid out the logic. They laid out the the propaganda for it um, before they achieved it, and in order to achieve it, they had to get, of course, the United States military into the region, so that's what 9/11 was all about, and as you saw, it was all done like on a greased slide. They had the authorization to use military force. They had declared it a, an act of war. Um, they had the Pentagon attack. So it, it was it, it was a, a foregone conclusion that the United States military would respond, and uh, you know it was it was all prepared in advance. It was all very carefully laid out so that the that that it was a given. It was a given that after 9/11, the United States would go into the Middle East and start waging war. And they started in Afghanistan, and then they, they pushed for Iraq. And this is all part of the, the doctrine of the, the Project for a New American Century that, that had that paper that came out one year before 9-11, in which they called for a complete change in the American military policy and foreign policy, that the United States should become the policeman of the world, that the United States should, should occupy Iraq, whether Saddam Hussein is on the throne or not, simply because it's, it's too important of a, of a country uh, to be left to its own. And this was all, you know, this was all discussed in the in the lead up to the election in 2000, when George Bush won, and it was, uh, you know, they knew that um, if George Bush won, and with Ariel Sharon in, uh, winning in, in Israel, that it was a pretty clear, uh, you know, pretty clear that there would be a uh, war coming out of this uh, constellation of of hardline people. It's, it's very similar to what happened in 1982 when you had Ronald Reagan and Menachem Begin in power. Um, an ideal i ideologue like Reagan or an ideologue like Bush with a, a, a liquid politician like uh, Ariel Sharon you're going to get you're going to get conflict
0: who was Ali Mohammed and what role did he play in creating the enemy to be fought in the war
1: on terror well Ali Mohammed was the first trainer for um, uh, Osama bin Laden and what happened is that when the of course when the Soviet when the Red Army conquered Afghanistan, there was this Mujahideen force that was uh, dislocated into uh, Pakistan, Afghans who were fighting against the Red Army uh, for Afghanistan. And um, what happened is that the United States, um, this is part of the Charlie, Charlie Wilson story, uh, Congressman Charlie Wilson from Texas, he and the Saudi Arabians and the Pakistanis agreed to uh, put up the money and what happened is that the Israelis under Ehud Barak again, when Ehud Barak was head of military intelligence in 83, 84, and 85, I think it was, um, he began providing the weapons and the training for the Mujahideen who were training in Pakistan and then going back into Afghanistan and fighting. And so what he, t- what he did is he took the weapons off the battlefield from um, Lebanon in 82 and transferred them to uh, Pakistan. And the Pakistani government was was aware that this was being done by Israel. It was it was secret and everything, but it, they allowed it to go on. And uh, one of the trainers who was training these Arabs, these Afghan Arabs are called people like Osama bin Laden, was a man named Ali Mohammed, who happens to be a Hebrew-speaking uh, agent, supposedly from Egypt, probably an Egyptian Jew or something. I don't know, but he spoke he spoke Hebrew, and he learned Hebrew probably from uh, being the trainer with the Israeli intelligence working in Pakistan. But uh, this is the man who trained and, and set up all these operations that were done in the name of Osama bin Laden. You know, so he, he set up other operations as well, like the uh, shooting in uh, in New York of Mayor Kahana and things like that. Um, Ali Muhammad then was then uh, finally arrested and he had been trained in America as well. He was then put in a federal penitentiary, a federal prison, um, and then he disappeared from that federal prison without a trace. <laughs> kind of like what happened to uh, Jeffrey Epstein.
0: I'm speaking with investigative journalist and author Christopher Boleyn. Today's show, The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What has your research revealed about the origins of the terrorist videos?
1: Well, the terrorist videos, you know, they they all have come to us from one source, and that source is um, Site Intelligence Group. And recently, there's a couple more branches, derivatives of that group. But Site Intelligence Group is a is a propaganda I call it a propaganda tool of the Israeli state. It's based in in Maryland, Bethesda, Maryland. It's run by an Iraqi Jewish woman named Rita Katz. And these videos would be provided from from her site intelligence group to the media and the subscribers and there was one of the videos back in uh i don't know 2009 or something about uh, osama bin laden and in that case she had she had sent this video or a beheading maybe it was a beheading video she had sent this video out to several people in the administration high high up people in the in the government and before it had been released and she told them don't 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 tell anybody you have this video until it's been released by the uh al-qaeda or ISIL or whatever it was, and, uh, but some, somehow it leaked. And so it became, a, it became known um, that, that she had this video, this Israeli woman had this video and had released it to the media before it had even been released by the people who were the terrorists. So you have to say, well, how did, how did this woman have the video before it's even been released by the, by the Arab terrorists? And this is this is the thing is that, you know, in order to keep the war on terror going and to steer this monster, they have to occasionally do things or bring out information or, uh, you know, uh, interpret what's going on in the Middle East uh, for the Americans. And 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 just like 9-11, how 9-11 was interpreted, it was interpreted for the United States government, for the military by Ehud Barak. It's the same thing what what. Rita Kotz and Site Intelligence is doing. They are interpreting the Middle East for us. And so what's amazing is these groups like ISIS and ISIL and Al-Qaeda, who can make all these flashy videos and, and, and do all these things, are unable to actually reach the Western media themselves directly. It always goes through this Israeli bottleneck, if you will. And it's, it's interesting that um, you asked about uh, what uh, General Wesley Clark said about this uh, this policy coup. And, and he had said that... Um, When this happened, when 9-11 happened, he said, we did not have American understanding of it. 9-11, he's talking about. And what he means to say is that we didn't – our understanding of 9-11 did not come from America, American sources, from American intelligence. It came to – our understanding came from Israel. Israel interpreted 9-11 for us. And that's the case all throughout the whole saga. The whole deception of 9-11 You know, 9-11 was done in order to achieve a certain agenda, and that agenda was the war on terror. Now, the war on terror and the attacks that the United States has done against the Arab states, it makes no sense. It makes no sense for Osama bin Laden to do something like that. He didn't do this big, sophisticated attack uh, because he hates American liberties or freedoms. It was done for a much more – a much bigger reason, and that reason was to start the war on terror. And the war on terror is an Israeli construct, so that the sophistication of 9-11 – and the end result of 9/11 strongly indicate that this is an Israeli or a Zionist operation from A to Z. And look at the look at the the actual memorial, the the Ground Zero memorial in New York City, was also designed and built by an Israeli. It was it was built by the former um, former ambassador, uh, Israeli ambassador's son, Arad Michael Arad.
0: Yes, with regard to the 9/11 memorial in New York City, I finally saw it a few years ago, and it's very, very dark. Uh, I was quite mm-hmm. shocked by it. It's uh, a lot of. The, the, I believe the museum is actually underground, um, mm-hmm. and the waterfalls. There are these waterfalls that go down into the ground. In, mm-hmm. the, in, in the shape of the footprints of the Twin Towers, but it's very, it's black-looking. And then there's this mm-hmm. bizarre, huge, white, it looks like the skeleton of a dinosaur or something.
1: I mean, the mm-hmm. whole thing is mm-hmm. just yeah really weird. And the, the guy, the, the, the architect who built it, this, young fellow who was not hardly known, he's a friend of Mayor Bloomberg. He's also a very close friend of the Netanyahu family. He's a friend. He's a personal friend of Netanyahu's son. So it's like the the entire you know operation from the planning and preparation, the setting up, the prediction, the ideation, of the actual event, then the foisting of the deception, fo- foisting the false narrative on the American public and the world, and then the the actual control of the legacy. What we're talking about at the memorial, you're talking about the legacy. You're talking about the place where uh, you know school buses come every day dozens of school buses come every day and kids are taken off the bus and led through this place and they're basically taught the false narrative they're indoctrinated into the false narrative of what happened on 9-11 that 9-11 was done by these you know fanatical arab muslims and that's why we are where we are today in the war on terror and see that's why this book the war on terror is so important because because i wrote it it's a very small book it's only about 160 pages long uh, 170 pages because it's 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 very important for the public to understand that the war on terror is a big fraud and the fraud of the war on terror is related to the deception we've been told about 9-11 like this book is 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 really meant for the reader who already understands that we've been deceived about 9-11 and who did it and the war on terror book explains why we have been deceived and who's behind the deception you write that the real radicals are, in fact,
0: the traitors in the political and media arenas who have pushed the lies about 9/11 and the war on terror since September 2001, as opposed to those who do real research on these events.
1: Right. Well, it's 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 from my chapter chapter two of the book. It says 9/11 truth is anything but radical, and that stands to reason. A radical a radical is somebody who who calls for like radical change in a political you know situation and that's what we got a conservative a conservative is a person who says "Well, let's let's you know go slow make incremental small changes let's not let's not you know change everything overnight but what happened with 9-11 of course is that before there was any investigation into what happened on 9-11 the united states was waging war in in afghanistan and the authorization, to wage, you know, the authorization to use military force we were talking about was passed. And so this, this longest war in American history was started before there was even any investigation. And when people call for a new investigation, they have to understand that there hasn't been an investigation of 9-11. 9-11 remains an unsolved crime, hence the title of my book, Solving 9-11. Um, it's an unsolved crime in which the, the evidence was actually confiscated and destroyed Rather than, than analyzed, so there's been no criminal investigation and there's been no trial, so it's it's it, it's a it's a very very bizarre thing and it's it it says a lot about the, uh, I don't know how to say this it's not it's how how America has gotten so hijacked by a small group of people who control the media, um and and it, they they they've hijacked our our nation for decades now into this war on terror and and it's 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 a war against the american people so it's really important that they wake up and understand that if we want to preserve any kind of freedom in america we have to understand how we've been duped into the war on terror
0: have the multiple trillions of dollars spent to wage the global war on terror been borrowed at interest
1: well yeah it's 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 all borrowed money trump said a couple months ago a few months ago he said that it's 7 trillion dollars and what have we gotten for it? Nothing, nothing. Well, we've gotten a lot worse than that. We've gotten a big, a big debt. Um, the seven trillion dollars plus the plus the uh, uh, interest on that on that debt is 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 just growing all the time. But the the actual cost of the war, including that that uh, uh, future debt payments and and treatment for the uh, the wounded vets and what what have you, is about seven trillion dollars. It's an incredible amount of money, and. So that's why you know you look around America, you see that the homeless people, uh, the situation with the uh, infrastructure, um, the general, you know, demise of our of our, our of our nation, and you say, couldn't that money have been better spent, you know, here at home rather than waging mindless, senseless wars against people who have nothing to do with 9/11 in distant countries?
0: How is treason defined in the U.S. Constitution, and how would treason apply to those who engaged in what the U.S. government termed an act of war?
1: Yeah, well, treason is, part of the treason argument is that by levying war against the United States government, by levying war against the American people, uh, and the, the nation, and anybody who, who Who supports that in any way it says in the uh, dictionary about the uh, treason in the Constitution is culpable of of the same crime so that would include people even in the media who have willfully uh, fed the deception you see it's it was an act of deception it's an ongoing act of deception we have now for 18 years this deception about 9-11 being presented in the media whenever it's discussed and so there, there's been no investigation by the media. The media has been complicit in this deception against American people, and that means that they are responsible also for the crime of treason because they are supporting, they are aiding, they are aiding and abetting in the in helping those who who levied, you know, war against the United States of America.
0: What effect have the 9/11 wars had on Syria?
1: Well, Syria is just. The latest, I don't know if it's the latest, the, the, there might be more going on in other places, but Syria is, is the, uh, the second one of those countries that the know plan called for on the Eastern Front. It said, first take out Iraq, break down its central government, the military, and balkanize the country. Then the next country was Syria. In Syria, that's what they've been doing. And, and in Syria, of course, they used um, these uh, self-created terrorist groups, ISIS and ISIL, and there's a whole host of them. And these are the people that McCain was seen going over. Senator McCain was seen, you know, meeting with them. And one of the people um, is thought to be that he's meeting with um, Al Baghdadi, the one who they said that they killed a couple of weeks ago. Um, but he's meeting with these people, these 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 terrorists who ran these militias, these gangs that were waging war against the government of Syria. So again, the target is to take down the central government of Syria, remove the uh, regime of Bashar al-Assad, which was elected after all, and replacing it with a, uh, a broken up country with uh, you know one one ethnic group here, one there, one there, one there. And they've succeeded in doing that. And what what they've really succeeded in doing is um, the United States is occupying the eastern third of the country uh, from the Euphrates River to the east. Uh, and that's where the oil is. And now Trump is you know saying that we're gonna we're gonna use this war on terrorism, to secure or to maintain control over Syria's oil and he says we're we're doing this to keep the oil away from ISIS, well, ISIL, I don't know. Um, one thing they're trying to keep it away from, they're definitely trying to keep it away from the Syrian government because it's the Syrian government who needs the oil more than anybody. Christopher Bolin, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Bonnie. It's been a pleasure.
0: I've been speaking with Christopher Boleyn. Today's show has been The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East. Christopher Boleyn is an independent researcher, investigative journalist, and author. He has lived and traveled extensively throughout the world, including the Middle East, where he studied the region's history and languages before earning a degree in history from the University of California, with an emphasis on Israel-Palestine. Along with research and writing, he has worked as an editor and translator. He is the author of Solving 9-11, The Deception That Changed the World, Solving 9-11, The Articles, and The War on Terror, The Plot to Rule the Middle East. His newest book is Solving 9-11, The Articles, Volume 2. Visit his website at bollyn.com. That's b-o-l-l-y-n.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at Faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GB Radio. revolution which is the evolution of the mind if you seek then you shall find that we all come from the divine you dig what i'm saying now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written You dig me?